Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Deb Becker. My name is David Blair, and I will be your moderator today. This webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. For the next hour, Deborah Becker will take any questions you have related to Individual Placement and Support, or IPS, with a focus on job development questions. Deb is a research senior associate and director of the International IPS Learning Community at the IPS Employment Center within Rockville Institute at Westat. She has more than 33 years of experience developing, researching, training, and consulting on individual placement and support. Today's event is part of a National Resource Center on Employment jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research and the Center for Mental Health Services, Substance Abuse, and Mental Health Administration within the Department of Health and Human Services. The content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies and should not be assumed to be an endorsement by the federal government. During registration for this event, you were given the opportunity to submit questions in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we will alternate between questions submitted in advance and the ones that you have today. To ask questions over the phone, please indicate that you would like to in the chat box. And when called upon, you'll press star star on your phone to unmute yourself. I've muted everyone for now to make sure that we don't get an echo feedback. Uh, you may also type your questions into the chat box and I'll read them to Deb on your behalf. Your participation is critical to the success of this event. As a reminder, if you joined us by telephone, please make sure to mute your computer speakers before asking questions. It will cause an echo that is not pleasing to anyone listening. Uh, welcome to the webinar, and I hope you enjoy the next hour. We will get started now with the questions submitted during registration, if that's okay with you, Deb. Sure. Sure. So Angela from Arkansas asks, what help is there for targets of workplace bullying who experience mental health problems as a result? Workplace bullying, maybe you better repeat that question again. Yeah, sure. So Angela from Arkansas asks, what help is there for targets of workplace bullying uh, who oh, experience mental workplace. health problems as a result? Where I just didn't understand. Workplace bullying uh, should not be tolerated, obviously, at all. Um, so read the question one more time. I'm just focusing on those words. Sure. So the, the, the question, the, what she's hoping to understand is what kind of help can she get uh, for people who are targeted by and bullied at work and that resulted in mental health problems? Hmm. Okay. And, and is she, well, I, I'm guessing she might be an employment specialist or so she's had people who've gone to work, have been bullying, and how to handle that situation? Is that... What she's yeah, I, I believe like. that's the idea. And let's assume she's an employment specialist, so she's trying to help a client. Yeah, so um, I guess some of it has to do with whether the employment specialist has been uh, introduced to the employer as being connected with this person who's working. Um, but it sounds like um, the person who asked the question is saying that some kind of stress or mental illness, I think was the words you used, uh, resulted from the bullying. Um, so uh, I think that if I was the employment specialist, I'm guessing that they are not connected to the employer because this may be new, that it would be a matter of trying to coach the employee 
on uh, connecting with his or her supervisor as a first step to explaining what happened, um, the bullying, and and also the, the effect that it, it happened on the person. I mean, I don't think anybody should be tolerating bullying and that we need to let employers know. And that's not obviously not an easy situation to handle. Uh, it probably would be easier if there was an employment specialist who had already connected with the employer and had a relationship and could talk about that. And it, it may be that the, um, the employer or the human resources department or some uh, people at that business are going to need to provide some education about having uh, good working relationships at work and um, what is expected of employees and what will not be tolerated by employees. I, I'd be happy to, if, if this person has a um, follow-up question or comment to me, if I'm um, addressing what the concern was and how to handle that. It's obviously a very sensitive issue, but we don't want to tolerate bullying. Sure. No, and that, that's an important point. If if uh, if she's out there, she could type another question. Otherwise, I, I think we'll move on to the next one. And again, I'm going to go with another one of the questions that's already asked. But if you are in the room right now and have a question, please let me know in the chat box below that you'd like to like, ask it, and we'll make sure to get to you. So the next question uh, comes from Judy in North Carolina, and she she asked specifically, what are the current statistics regarding our success for IPS consumers becoming becoming self-supporting? Well, that's a very good question. I do not have a statistic on that. I think that um, people served in IPS programs and evidence-based supported employment programs tend to help people get part-time jobs. We want them to be more full-time, um, if possible, or as much time that works for that individual. And I think we should all, as a field and together, be working towards helping people work as much as they can. And for those who are able to be work full-time and self-supporting, that's, that's a great goal. I also know in our country that minimum wage is you know, how can you work on that even if you're full-time? Um, there's a, uh, a book uh, called Nickel and Dimed you might be familiar with, and it was a, a woman who actually went out and tried to support herself and needed to have multiple jobs to do it and had to live in unsafe places. And so it, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But that certainly is we want everyone to be able to live as independently as possible and self-supporting as possible. Following up on that, in your own experience that you've had, do you have a general idea just anecdotally the uh, turn, you know, conversion to self-supporting? So self-supporting, you know, that's, that's a, a broad term. Does that mean working full-time and, and self-supporting from your income from your work? Um, rather than having other sources of income as well, I think that there it is a not a large group um, in these uh, supported employment programs, but we're forever trying to see how to make that better. But we don't we don't have that right now. One okay. thing that we are trying to do, um, we are uh, starting a large uh, project with Social Security 
and helping the eligibility requirement um, for this study is for people who've had an initial denial for, for Social Security benefits because of a, an alleged mental health condition. So we're trying to, um, we think that it would be helpful to intervene earlier. Thank you, Thank you. Anyway, um, I think everyone is, is wanting to uh, figure out how to help people be self-supporting and possibly intervening early and providing supports earlier uh, to help people get to work will, we hope, be helpful. We have a question from someone in the room. Matthew, I, I believe if you press star star on your phone, you can unmute yourself and go ahead and ask Deborah. Okay. Hi, Deborah. Can you hear me? I sure can. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. All right. So my question is kind of a two-part question. Is there a difference in employment outcomes for war veterans that acquire physical disability compared to civilians that acquired a physical disability? And then if or if not, and for either, what is the most dominant barrier? Is it going to be more actually physical or psychological? For veterans? Yeah. So okay. I meant, is there a difference in employment outcomes for veterans that acquire a physical disability? compared to civilians that acquire disability, not born with, but both parties acquiring uh, a disability. civilians that are not veterans with physical right. so disability. Is there a different employment outcomes? Like, so for a veteran that gets out of service that acquires a physical disability due to service, as opposed to a civilian that just acquires a, a physical disability, say, due to a car accident, and then no, I don't have the I don't have the answer to that question. Um, I think that's a great question for someone in our Veterans Administration. Um, uh, Lori Davis would be a good person to ask uh, about that, and I don't have Lori Davis's um, email address right now, but if you email me, I can get you connected with her, and, and I bet she would know. Okay, could you answer my second question, perhaps, if you just take okay. that first part right out? Um, if uh, So basically, what's the more dominant barrier? Is it going to be physical or psychological when trying to, um, yeah, with I, a person I, with a physical disability? You know, my area has been um, with people with uh, psychiatric disabilities. And so while I was trained as a rehabilitation counselor, I can't give you um, as a good answer on that one. But there's probably somebody out there who uh, has some kind of data on that. Okay. Thank you for your right, question. You. No problem. Thank you. Uh, so James in the, the chat box asked, what motivates employers to take on the additional issues that comes with hiring individuals with mental health conditions? Well, I think a lot of employers, what their focus is on getting the job done, hiring employees who will work hard, be at work, and get the job done because they have the skills and the interest in doing it, which is um, higher, actually, for people who have mental illness than people who don't. So uh, there could be extra um, things that are involved with that. There could be connecting with an employment specialist, which actually could be a support um, or not. But people who have mental illnesses are going to work. They're good employees and um, have better attendance, actually, than people who don't. Thank you for that. Uh, hopefully that answered your question, James. Um, Andrea from California asks, have you seen value added with peer employment recovery specialists included into the model? I'm, I'm guessing she means IPS. So that's a great question, too. There are no data on that, right? No research data has not been studied, but I would say anecdotally that Teams that include peer specialists <clears throat> um, 
have great success. And, and in part, the, the peer is, has a special role in, in being able to engage people around work and be able to share a little bit about what their situation had been and um, offer the hope and, and the support that other people can work as well. So I, th I think that it's, um, there is a place for that. Uh, on our website, you will, if you put in um, peer IPS specialist, you'll see uh, job descriptions in there. We have a, as part of our group, we have a, a committee of, of peers who are developing materials and, and really looking at that role of a peer specialist on IPS that um, I think has been really helpful. I think, you know, the research hasn't been done yet, uh, and that would be good. But in the meantime, you know, I think it's helpful. It's not, the peer specialist does not replace what the employment specialist does or any part of that, but augments the support for the, for the individuals. And you mentioned the website in your, your response. What, what's the name of that website so people can search for it? www.ipsworks.org. So IPS. W-O-R-K-S dot org. Perfect. Um, Samantha asks, how do we help increase job development effectiveness when local hiring managers are unable to retrieve online applications uh, as they're filtered, released by corporate offices? You know, that's, that's a very common question. And, and what we have found is uh, developing the connections with the hiring authority is key. And if, you know, um, corporate office isn't letting you in there and you're not getting information about how to get around that, I would, I would then go to the local business and try to connect with department managers who will often have a say in, in who is hired and try to make the connection there as best you can. You know, one, one thing that I experienced recently myself was I heard about how in terms of billing for these services, that unless someone is physically there, you know, the client is there with them, they can't bill with it. Do you have suggestions for those people? Well, you know, that um, is a state issue usually on um, what can be billed for what in that state. And so there are some states that have figured out with Medicaid how to um, bill uh, when, when the individual, the job seeker, is not with the employment specialist connecting with uh, employers to find out about jobs. So okay. um, it's not the same everywhere, unfortunately. And and that's, you know, the big problem that we have in this country is how do you pay for these services in a, in a simple, um, coordinated way so programs like yours can, you know, you offer these services and, and sustain and, and be able to even expand. So um, we're hoping that in our lifetime, that will be figured out uh, because work is so important to recovery for so many people. And the idea that, that it's not paid for in a simple, easy way doesn't make any sense. I mean, really, when you start to think about other things that are paid for. Justin uh, asked, how would you go about developing an opportunity for someone with a criminal history? That's a great question. And I think there's a, a bit of mythology out there that employers will not hire people who have had uh, difficulties with the criminal justice system. So because of the, um, that belief, uh, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, um, there were uh, people from our group 
who connected with other IPS uh, specialists and uh, supervisors around the country to go out and interview employers and just find out what their policies are about hiring people with uh, criminal justice backgrounds. And we have information on our website about that. And actually, employers do hire people with uh, criminal justice backgrounds of all kinds. The, what's important we found uh, during doing this project and also with watching lots of people job develop in the field is, is getting the, making a good job match for one, but having the job seeker prepared for how they are going to describe who they are and what they want and uh, be upfront about it. And it's also best, and employers told us, that getting the job seeker face-to-face um, -face with them is, that's what you want to try to do. And so once they meet someone and see that they're a real person, they have a real interest in, in working, uh, may acknowledge that they've made some mistakes, but here are reasons, um, things that they have done to better themselves and improve their life situation, and may even come with a um, <clears throat> couple references for people who currently know them and can um, advocate for them that uh, employers will hire people with criminal justice backgrounds. doesn't mean all, right. all employers will do that, but a lot more do than, than most people think. Right, and, and I wanted to share, I heard about recently there's a job board called 70millionjobs.com that's developed specifically for people with criminal backgrounds. So you can go on there to look about employers who are, you know, understanding of that sort of situation. Uh, Kristen asks, what strategies do you have for helping adults with uh, schizophrenia, overcoming barriers, specifically negative symptoms, and engaging in work activity? So what I think is that we need to uh, get to know people, who they are, what are their strengths, what do they want to do, um, what are their skills, and focus on that, and then find what kind of job that would be that would be a good job match. It may be, and, and also uh, the kinds of supports that will help individuals. So it could be somebody who has difficulty with concentration. Um, they would put, uh, make a list of steps they need to complete to do their job. So I, I, I still focus on who the person is, what their strengths are, and trying to figure out where that job would be, what the job would be. And it may be for um, some people who have negative symptoms, some may not be the, the best job inter interviewees um, in the world, right? Have, may have a hard time appearing really enthusiastic about wanting the job and, and selling themselves. And so in some, some cases like that, people decide that they would like to have a support person, such as an employment specialist, IPS specialist, um, with them to talk to the employer about what they can do. People with schizophrenia with, you know, negative symptoms work. Evan asks, and this is from the chat box too, in your experience, when is education needed for an employer about, when is your education needed for an employer about the needs of employees with mental health conditions, for example, reasonable accommodation, and who provides that education? Hey, that's a great question. I always think it would only be need-to-know information that would help the employee, so if they do need an accommodation. So um, let's say somebody has, um, hears voices, 
right? And headphones might be a good accommodation, so um, they would uh, not be distracted or upset by negative voices that they're hearing. That's, that's a very simple, easy accommodation uh, that could, make, could be made. Someone who has fearful thoughts and an easy, and they do best working in a workstation by themselves, you know, that's a, a pretty easy accommodation to be made. Who tells the employer this? I think all, all these kinds of decisions are really up to the job seeker, and it's, it's a discussion that they have with the IPS specialist about um, the advantages of uh, letting an employer know um, of some of the challenges they have and accom simple accommodations that would otherwise help them to be a good employee, and whether the individual wants to try to talk directly to the employer about that or, or have the IPS specialist do it, but, um, you know, it, they should, I think they should do it together if possible, but, it, but that decision really is made by the job seeker, and the IPS specialist role is to help them understand, well, what are the disadvantages and advantages of doing it different ways. Sure. Uh, moving on to the next question, Amy from Alberta, Canada asks, how or what is your best approach, best way to approach an employer when you have a candidate with mental health issues and or an addiction issue? So how do you begin the conversation about, you know, the, the issues that the individual has? So I guess, um, you know, people have uh, a lot of beliefs about, well, both addiction and mental illness, but... Um, uh, the addiction part is I would not bring up first, and um, I always bring up first uh, what the skills and talents are of the person, but if something is going to be obvious over time um, that may be related to a mental illness, it may be uh, related to um, talking to voices, that kind of thing that, that is, um, would be apparent, that that would be something that you could explain to the employer uh, that an individual does have this situation um, that hears things, and then we'll talk talk back to that. It sounds muttering, but this is not going to, um, you know, be a problem uh, probably. And and this is how the person handles it the best. And then describe that for addiction. I don't know how much you want to get into that um, uh, as a problem, and uh, you know. We want people to go to work. We're not, you know, people aren't going to get excuses if they um, have trouble with alcohol and drugs and go, don't go to work. It's a problem. And so people need to understand that and try to figure out how they're going to be able to be a worker um, and what they're going to do about their youth. Ferdinand asked, how do we best support people interested in a career job versus an entry-level transitional job using the IPS model? Uh, at our workplace, we have recovery coaches, education coaches, and employment coaches. So you, you separated out the roles of employment and education, and I'm not sure about the recovery, how that may overlap with those, those two positions. But repeat that question again. Sure. So how do we best support people interested in a career job versus an entry-level or transitional right. using right. IPS? Right. That, um, we always start with where the individual is in terms of their work life and how long they've been out of work, how, how much they've worked at all, and start there 
and talk with them about what's the next step for them. It may be an entry-level job. It may be wanting to um, return to a higher-level job or, or, or something similar. That, of course, that's always supported. What the individual wants and consistent with what their skills and talents and preferences are right now. I think as a field, we have not, we've not focused on careers the way we should, the way everybody should develop careers and, and the way everybody goes through more than one or two jobs as they are figuring out what they're um, best at as a worker and what they want to advance to as a worker. So I think we need to think about education more, um, especially with younger people. Uh, I think we also should be thinking more about certificate programs that are more short-term, that can give people skills to um, advance in their work lives and develop careers. Thank you. Uh, Mary asks, hi, does the agency that sponsors the IPS model have the authority to deny an, indi an individual IPS services uh, if they do not receive treatment through the agency? And she's in the room here now if you need a clarification. The, one of the basic features of IPS is that anybody who wants to have support, support going to work or school is eligible. We're not going to screen people out because of criminal justice background, because they're having mental health symptoms or um, problems with homelessness. Um, we're going to help people. That said, these programs are embedded in facilities, right, that have their own uh, criteria for, for being served. But all people who are in those facilities who want to, want to work, um, should be able to uh, get support from the IPS program. And, and if you need clarification, Mary, just feel free to type in the chat box more. I have a second question from Matt. Yes, is there good evidence that vocational rehabilitation counseling is likely to increase successful gainful employment outcomes for people who develop PTSD? And people with PTSD, well, IPS certainly uh, helps with that. And as you know, um, there is a strong partnership between the state federal system, Voc Rehab, and IPS. So um, the two systems work together to help people, and people with PTSD do go back to work. And um, I mentioned Lori Davis from the Veterans Administration, Alabama, has completed a study that um, has some very favorable findings. Sure. Yet. So uh, that'll be cool. That's upcoming. Certainly. James asks, where would I find the research that shows individuals living with mental health conditions have better attendance than the norm? There are. I think you could even just Google it. You'll, there are references all over around that. But if you want to email me, too, I can um, get references for you. My email is Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Becker, no dot in between, just Deborah Becker at westat.com. And I, I think we can send that out if there's a demand for it amongst the group. Uh, Evan asks, is there, uh, in relation to career development, as opposed to entry-level or transitional jobs, do you find that at a certain point in recovery, clients are deemed too, quote-unquote, high-functioning to qualify for services? If so, what happens uh, then if they still need some support? Right. You know, I have heard that in a state or two that that will happen. Um, and then basically, if they don't, if they are not eligible for the IPS program um, agency in the state, they would... 
then get support through state vocational rehabilitation. Hopefully that got to your, your question, Evan. Um, Vera from California asks, how does a supervisor know when it might be a good time to suggest an employee take time off for self-care? Or what are some signs that an employee needs time for self-care? Okay, so I'm assuming that you're just talking about anybody working anywhere who is having some difficulty. It might be uh, some employers have um, employee assistance programs. Maybe it would be helpful for somebody to go meet with a counselor to see what's going on. Mostly, our role as workers is to work, and uh, sometimes it's helpful to have uh, some time off, and many employers uh, will make accommodations for people because they are valued employees and need that time, or part, um, maybe reduce their hours at work. But that's a general question and a general response, really. Yeah. We want people to get support, um, and it may be through EAP or supervisor feels that they're unable to support the individual. Maybe they need to go higher up in the business or consultation around it. But, you know, the goal is for people to try to be steady workers. I have a question from Paul out of North Carolina, and this one's specific to a state, so I'm going to try to rephrase it a little. He has a client who's looking for financial counseling related to the impact of Medicaid and SSI benefits, uh, but he can't find anyone in his area. So where, where does someone go to look for help with that, if, you know, if they don't know where to start? Okay, so want some benefits counseling, right? So work yeah. incentives counseling? Is that, yeah. is that the question? So I would just go straight to um, the state leader, uh, state mental health leader, who is responsible for employment services and ask. You could also just go to your, um, oftentimes it's through vocational rehabilitation, so you could contact them. How, do, how does somebody get uh, benefits counseling and where? It's an important resource, and it's certainly not spread evenly across the country. Uh, Kim uh, just asked in the chat box, they say, I'm from West Virginia. How do I find out if there are any agencies in the state that use the IPS model? And if there are none, how can this be started? So, um, actually, Gary Bond here, uh, one of our researchers, did a, um, a survey of all the states um, about whether uh, they implemented IPS or other employment services. So, I might be able to ask him around West Virginia. But how do, you, how do you get it started? I think you, you need to go to your state leaders and talk to them about uh, you know that work is an important path to recovery. You want to support that, and you want them to support that. We have, um, we have developed over the last uh, few decades a, a learning community, IPS learning community, that now includes 23 of the states in our country. And we started small with three states, but we we connected with state leaders and the state mental health authority and state vocational rehabilitation to help them plan for how to provide the in infrastructure to build these services, how to have training available, how to uh, to help programs start implementing, how to fund these services, how to track outcomes, how to monitor implementation and fidelity. And so um, it's been a really good model for expanding these services within states and across states. And so you might, I think you should go to our website and look about look at the information about the IPS learning community, and you might uh, connect with your state leaders and 
we certainly would be happy uh, to talk to anyone about these kinds of services that um, states might consider implementing. And, and can you just you just mentioned the IPS Learning Community? Can you tell us what that's about? So it's actually called the International IPS Learning Community, and um, how this came about was um, back in 2001. We received a call from Corporate Contribution. This is a, a very separate arm from their corporate um, offices and uh, business offices and their pharmaceuticals and all that. This is just their, um, their gift giving. They had never given any money away in the area of mental health. They give money away worldwide. And so they decided they, they got steered in our direction from NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and National Institute of Mental Health. And the short story of this uh, is that we developed a relationship where they wanted to support us connecting with state leaders to develop <clears throat> these services. And so while they no longer give us money anymore, it launched us. And um, we started with three states that just had one site in each state. And now um, there are over 300 sites that are from 23 states. And they all, um, once they've had a baseline interview, uh, baseline fidelity review, they start reporting quarter, simple quarterly outcomes. And so we're all, they're all tied together through that, the reporting. They also um, can uh, participate in um, training at reduced rates. We connect with the state leaders at a, a in-person annual meeting. We also have state-level conference calls throughout the year. We have a, a peer committee, a family committee, an employer committee. So um, it's really a, a, this huge network, and it continues to grow. And people, the best part about it is people learn from their peers and learn from each other. So it's, it's been uh, really a wonderful project. There are three European countries in it, and, and also there are other countries and other states, actually, that um, are wanting to participate. We try to spend time with the state leaders to let them know what this means and the support that we can give in terms of training and helping them to think about the infrastructure to build this in their state. It's been a great mechanism for expanding these services. There's information on the website about it, too. So um, that, That's the IPS Works website? Yes. All right. Ferdinand from... British Columbia, Canada asks, can you speak to the relationship between supported education and employment? More specifically, how do we best support individuals with the goal of a career job versus a job? Well, I think when we first started this, our focus was more on older people, actually, and so it was on employment. And as the field has um, embraced and encouraged younger people uh, to think about this, it's obvious that education is an important part of it. And so um, we need to think about supported education and supported employment, all focused on careers, developing careers and having a career path. So someone may start out in, um, so let's say, for example, I, I do like animals a lot. I used to have five cats. I now have two dogs. And uh, working um, in a veterinary office would be great. For me, and let's say I started that as even as a, a entry level job, I might decide that I want to do more with that and get more training to be able to be um, a vet tech, for example. Or maybe I even want to go on and um, and see about pursuing a career as a veterinarian. Those things, those just you know, everybody should be able to think about think big like that 
and think about what's it going to take to do that and how will how do I need to access additional education, additional training in order to have a career path. Most of us did start with entry-level jobs. Some launched right into maybe high-level jobs, but a lot of us started with entry-level jobs. Santana asks, what recommendations do you have to encourage IPS providers to serve clients that are actively participating in treatment with another mental health provider? So that's tricky because this is really a team approach. And so you want your IPS specialist to be connecting with a team of providers that are helping the individual. So, you know, you're talking about sort of how services are organized, and integrated services are always best services um, and have the best outcome. So as much as you can get um, IPS services within an agency, within a team or teams, that would be good. Um, If you, let's say, are from a um, psych rehab agency that doesn't have mental health treatment, you know, they still can coordinate services with a mental health agency that provides the mental health treatment. But as you can imagine, there's more involved in doing that. We want um, all providers to be face-to-face, to be connecting, sharing information, to provide coordinated care. And so you know that, I mean, you can imagine it would be harder if people are from two different agencies. Yeah. Moving on to the the next question. Gina asks, can you discuss the differences and similarities in the IPS model and the vocational rehabilitation model? It's a a three-parter. Do you have any specific suggestions on how they can better work together to assist clients? Do you think that the voc rehab programs should be more like the IPS model? Okay, so voc rehab, are are we referring to the state federal system where there are VR offices in all our communities? You know, is that what we mean by voc rehab, that that system where the counselors typically have very high caseloads, 150 to 200 people sometimes. They provide time-limited services. If that's what you mean... I said that is what she means. Okay, great. So in 23 states, that's how it's working now. Um, That, you know, when we were approached by um, the corporate giving, uh, they said, you know, you know how to do this figure it out and we'll um, help to support it. And so what we felt was that we wanted to develop something that would be sustainable. And so that is systems coordination. So, um, and that starts at the top. Um, As you know, or maybe you don't know, but the VR counselors have um, a lot of um, independence and in how they uh, provide services. And so um, so it varies a lot in terms of how I think services are provided to different people. But we felt that by trying to get the two systems together, you know, the mental health system knows how to work with people with serious mental illness, right? And that's been that's in many largest VR population, and it's also the population that they have most difficulty helping to get jobs, right? But their services are more time-limited, but the mental health side can provide the more long-term ongoing support as needed and wanted, right? So, you know, it varies from state to state. You know, some states have figured this out and and do a fabulous job. I can remember I got a call from one state mental health leader saying, how how do we get involved in this learning community? And um, so we had this discussion, and I said, okay, and, and who's your state, you know, VR partner. And she had no idea. She she didn't even know what I was talking about. And right now, 
they have um, very coordinated services, uh, integrated services, and it's um, in all their communities. And they figured it out. I mean, it, it uh, takes a lot of time and hard work. Um, it doesn't work perfectly every time, um, but it can work well. It doesn't always work well, I understand that, but I guess our mission is to try to make it work better because we need different funding sources, right? And we need different services that can help uh, provide the support over time. So just having this service paid by, you know, mental health, it's not going to stay. It's going to be hard to keep it going a long time. So we need this, uh, the financial support of the VR system, um, figuring out about Medicaid, how to do this. So we need, we need partners. Um, so, uh, I'm, again, I'd be happy to field uh, questions and, and comments uh, through my email if you're in a state where um, you'd like that to see that happen more. Sure. And, and Jean actually has a quick follow-up here. She writes, we are in North Carolina. If someone needs assertive community treatment services act, uh, they're getting it through their vocational services on the act team. State vocational rehabilitation cannot provide any financial assistance or any services for that matter to the act clients. They make the client leave the act team to get access to the vocational rehabilitation funding. And she asks, have you seen this before? I have, but I, I tell you, when we work with states, we strongly encourage that they develop a steering committee at the top to look at how are we going to pay for these services, what's a barrier right now, you know, having, you know, different funding streams that then forces people to leave certain services to get other services is, you know, are we really thinking of the people that we're serving here? Kristen has an uh, act teams are unable to utilize vocational rehabilitation services for vocational purposes, but are able to use vocational rehabilitation to support someone in pursuing education. Do you know if ACT teams can use VR for benefit counseling? Well, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that. I would hope so, but, you know, I don't know. Is this a North Carolina person? Yes, well, she is. Uh, she is. Okay. Well, then you probably know Stacey Smith at the state who um, knows a lot about ACT. She's at the Mental Health Authority. And she is a strong leader of IPS services in North Carolina. So she and, you know, in North Carolina is in our learning community. So there is this partnership between the Mental Health Authority and, and VR. So uh, I, would, I would contact her and ask her about it. Hopefully that answers her question. Uh, Shay writes, how do I tell my employer about my disability? As I feel it will take away uh, my stress in performance. So ho hopefully how to tell about it, their experience so they can reduce their own stress. Sounds like you've thought about the pros and cons of letting your employer know um, that you have some challenges. I think you want to really think about, you know, what you would tell your employer. What, what do they need to know? What do you want them to know and why? Think, you know, really uh, map that out for yourself before you tell your employer. You know, we have a, um, there's a worksheet on our website about thinking about disclosure. And so you might uh, go to the website and look for that. We have a library now where you can just search for what you want, put in self-disclosure and see if that worksheet doesn't help you try to think it through. Um, why you want to say something to your employer, what you want to say, and what you want to get out of it. Uh, and, you know, I think the BU website, too, we have an entire section, which is a question and answer area, uh, to help people think through the process of disclosing and even choosing getting or going back to work. And maybe 
if Joan has a second, she can put that uh, up there for people. Um, the next question is from Samantha, and she asks, is there data being collected on providing IPS services for consumers who have substance abuse disorder without a SPMI? There are. Um, that is becoming a, a great uh, topic of interest now, um, even at the federal level. Um, but IPS services are being uh, provided, and there are studies, um, few, but there are studies of people who um, have a uh, substance use disorder. Well, we're coming to the end shortly, so we, ha we only have time for one or two more questions. So if there's something burning in anyone's mind, uh, now is the time to ask it. So Evan writes, do you know of any services or models out there that can provide counseling to people who are working and not involved with IPS or VR, but who want support in disclosing a mental health condition to their employer? So I guess uh, uh, I would, again, think about um, the employee assistance program that you, that you might have uh, with your employer to talk to a counselor um, about that. If you don't have access to IPS, you're not a VR person or, um, you know, it sounds like you'd like to talk to somebody to discuss the benefits of that and um, the advantages and what might be disadvantages so you can decide. Sure. And, and you know, uh, Samantha, also, if you email the center here, it's uh, sci-rehab at bu.edu, we should be able to put you in touch with someone who can at least talk to you about something and hopefully point you to someone you can talk to. So I, I think that that is it for time. I would like to thank you, Deb, for coming here to answer everyone's questions today and everyone else for attending. Uh, the next Ask Me Anything About Employment session, it was with Bob Drake on October 18th. Uh, the announcement will go out by email in the coming weeks. In the next few days, uh, all the attendees will be receiving a survey about your experience, and we would love for you to give us feedback about this event. Uh, thank you again, and we look forward to having you join us. And thank you very much, Deb. I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks for all you all do. Yes, and, and thank you, everyone, for coming out. This, is, this has been fantastic. All right. Have a great day, guys.